Hi everyone, we hope you're enjoying Season 5 of Elixir Wizards. Before we get into today's show, we want to make a quick announcement. We're currently looking for an engineering manager to join our team. If you have expertise in React, Elixir, or Ruby, a track record of improving engineering processes, and a proficiency in the design, maintenance, and assessment of technical architecture, we'd love for you to apply. Our team is fully remote in the United States, and first-time managers are encouraged to apply. Head over to smartlogic.io jobs to learn more and submit your application. Thanks, and now here's the show. Welcome to Elixir Wizards, a podcast brought to you by SmartLogic, a custom web and mobile development shop based in Baltimore. My name is Justice Eatman, and I'll be your host. I'm joined by my mesmerizing co-host, Sunday Mint, and my otherworldly producer, Eric Ostrich. I'll have you notice that I used alliteration on the last names this time, so we are mixing it up. This season's theme is Adopting Elixir, and today we're joined by the CEO of Duffel, Steve Domeen. How are you, Steve? Hi. Very good. Thanks for having me on the show. Steve, we're so glad to have you. You are also the organizer or one of the organizers of the London Elixir meetup. You're technical. We saw on your LinkedIn, you have been a programmer for a long time. I'm going to ask you how you got into programming, but first we're going to jump right into some Elixir because we were talking before the show started about Jose Valim, who invented Elixir, and some of his cryptic tweets that have been coming out lately. What is he tweeting about, and what are you gathering from these tweets? I mean, yeah, there's just a, a lot of tweets recently, benchmarking, numbers, binaries. So I know a lot of people at Duffel are asking the question, like, hey, do you know what, what's happening with uh, with Jose, there's clearly like a secret project going on. So uh, Jose, if you hear this, it's time to reveal it. Calling out Jose Valim on Elixir Wizards. That's definitely going to make this go viral. What about you? Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got into programming? We'll get to Duffel. I can't wait to get to Duffel, but I want to hear just about you, how you got into programming, how you learned to program. Tell us about it. Yeah. So I think I started around like 14 or 15, maybe. Uh, I was in high school. Uh, we had this... Uh, project this assignment to build uh, this robot that would follow line it was very popular in france i think a lot of uh, school give that as an assignment and i wanted to build a website to put some pictures of the robots and i think that's how it all started and there was a, a website in france to learn pro in france to learn programming called site du zero which translates to website for zeros and they just like run you through all of the steps to build your first HTML website, and then they added courses on JavaScript. And yeah, that's how I got started. And very quickly, I ended up getting into Flash and ActionScript. And for a long time, I was actually uh, an ActionScript developer. I feel like Flash has come up on the show recently. I'm a big fan of Flash. It, it brings me back to my glory days when I was like six. So you were in a robotics program initially. That's amazing. You built a robot before you built a website. That to me seems amazing. Do you remember kind of like what sparked your interest? Was it a mandatory course requirement or was it an elective? And just like, what about programming sort of made you excited? No, so it, it was mandatory. I was following a science track, science and technology track in, in high school. And that was part of the, the cursus. And I can't really remember. Uh, the robot, if you saw it, it wasn't very impressive. I mean, maybe I'm making it sound like it was bigger than it was, but it was very simple. But yeah, just that's how it all got started. And the website, I really, like, I had 
we had internet at my home and seen some website and I was kind of fascinated by it and I wanted to build one. So that's how it all started. Did you have any resources that were really helpful for you? I know like today there are a lot of really great resources for kids to learn, like even as like young as like two or three years old. So I'm curious as to like when you were learning what resources were out there for you. Yeah. So aside from the the website, I mentioned the site of the zeros, there wasn't much back then. I think that was the main thing, to be honest, because there's no books, or at least not that I could find in the city that I was living in. So yeah, all just that single website that had a course on HTML. Nothing at school as well, which was, yeah, nothing. Do you remember your first paid job in programming? Yeah, I do actually. It was a freelance job. I was uh, tasked to build a this action script program, this Flash program. Actually, it wasn't even Flash to be accurate. It was Flex. So Flex was this technology from Adobe that was meant to be used to build a rich application, as they used to call it back then. So it was a suite of components that it was essentially a framework that you could use to build a rich applications. I mean, Google it after the show. It's, uh, it's proper old school. And so yeah, I got that job where you I was tasked to build an application in Flex to sort through hundreds and hundreds of photos for some kind of research department in France. Can you, this is way off topic, but I'm curious if you can maybe explain like some of the Flash ecosystem of the time, because now it's come up a few times on the show. And I do think actually kind of placing the technological kind of ecosystem context is interesting for people. Like I remember flash being like macromedia flash. It was supposed to be like multimedia animations, sounds and and everything, but it would run in the browser. I was like seven years old at the time. So I don't really remember that stuff very well, but I'm curious if if you can maybe tell us a little bit more about that ecosystem. I've never heard of flex before action script. I have heard of, can you maybe just tell us a little bit more about that? Like ecosystem in the world? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, it's been a while now, but so yeah, Flash was the kind of micromedia uh, runtime for, I guess, rich applications or rich uh, animation. So Adobe bought micromedia and then it became an Adobe product. And the language back then was ActionScript 2. And then Adobe bought it and started the development of ActionScript 3, which if I remember correctly, was inspired by java more than it was by javascript which for action script 2 it was uh, that was the origin and after a little while adobe started developing this technology called flex and so it was a framework that w- that was built entirely in action script 3 that had a lot of components i mean it was in a, in many ways like react before the time or like it was well like maybe react is not a good analogy but it was just this high-level framework that would sit on top of ActionScript 3 and Flash. And they, they even had that integrated development environment that was built on Eclipse, which was called Flex Builder. And so you had the coding view, but also, I can never pronounce that name in English, what you see is what you get, like WYSIG, or like a, an environment where you could drag and drop components and build your interface uh, in this way in Flex Builder. Yeah, that was it. It's so bizarre to me that at one point, Adobe had such a huge impact on the world of web development. Like once upon a time, Macromedia Flash was literally everywhere. 
And now, first of all, I haven't heard anyone talk about it in like a live development sense in at least a decade. Now I've heard more people talk about Cold Fusion, which I don't think is related at all. There was a lot of when Adobe bought Macromedia. And at that time, there was a lot of interoperability between Flash and Cold Fusion. So you could use Cold Fusion for the back end to your Flash application. And they had all of these kind of pre-built module for forms and a bunch of other things. Hmm. Yeah, not any more though, I'd expect. I mean, Cold Fusion, no. I feel like it's still pretty modern. People will use Cold Fusion. I mean, a few years ago, someone yeah. was asking me, like, do you work on Cold Fusion? I was like, no, but. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure I'd call Cold Fusion necessarily modern, but surprisingly, they did still have a virtual conference this year. So it's big somewhere. Wow. So let's get to talking about Duffel. Duffel's one of the most interesting startups, I think, around right now. You started in 2017, is that right? Yeah, correct. What is Duffel? We are essentially rebuilding the software stack for the travel industry. So if you've ever been on a plane or checked into an hotel, or, which seems like a very remote experience nowadays, but back when we used to do that, all of the software that sits underneath this experience has been built in the 60s, 70s, so very, very old technology that runs on mainframes. So the travel industry is not the most modern industry in the world, and it's been very hard for people to innovate. If you look at the, the experience that we have in online travel, I mean, since the first generation on, of online travel agencies, we can't say that things have changed much. There's more websites and more options to buy flights and book hotels, but we can't really say that the experience is better. And in many ways, like, I mean, COVID has highlighted a lot of the deficiencies like around cancellation and refunds. And a lot of that has been manual and people have had a lot of pains. And so what we wanted to do with Duffel was build a newer, more modern set of software for the travel industry. And, and our first product is the Flights API, which is uh, an API that lets you search, book, manage, cancel, buy ancillaries, buy seats for the flights industry. Mm -hmm. And when did that API become publicly available? So we launched it last year in September last year and initially in a closed beta. And then we opened sign up on the API in April 2020, so a few months oh ago. Can you talk a little bit about a travel tech company debuting its flagship product in the middle of a global pandemic wherein like 80% of flights have been canceled? Yeah. So we actually like had a, a timeline that was much longer. And when COVID hit, we decided to accelerate everything because our reasoning was there aren't going to be that many people that are looking at plugging into a flights API right now. So what best time there is to launch something and see what breaks and start gathering feedback. And it actually has been like super valuable because instead of experiencing just a large number of customers coming and, and starting to play with the APIs and all things break, which naturally would have happened, we've actually had that slow ramp up and it's been super valuable for us. Can you talk a little bit about you mentioned the tech is ancient from the 60s and 70s. I worked in the travel software space a little bit too, and I didn't work on the integration side, but we heard about it all the time. Our integrations team had so many pain points integrating 
Can you speak a little more to what that system looks like and how your API helps alleviate those pain points for teams? Yeah, so without going into too much details, the way the travel industry works today, and actually I'll focus on airlines because that's what we do the most now. So it makes things a bit more focused. So the airlines run these massive software systems called passenger service systems or PSS. And that's a suite of different components, software components that do anything from reservation, departure control, loyalty programs, revenue management, and a bunch of other things. So this is the stack that has been built ages ago. And there is a layer on top of that that's called the GDS, which is a global distribution system. So there are companies like Amadeus, that's like very big in Europe, and Sabre in the US that connect to all of these different PSS from airlines, so these central reservation systems. They offer APIs, but these APIs have been built like many, many, many years ago and are not very easy to work with. They are even like very difficult to get access to and not well documented. It's not rare for us to receive documentation in a suite of Word documents, so 20, 25 Word documents with table that really scream to be displayed on a large screen but constrained by the width of the word page which is really really not ideal and where we come in is that we connect directly into the reservation systems of the airlines but through a newer set of apis that the airline have built recently that is supposed to be like very modern technology but it's like xml on soap how recent is it last 10 years so not super recent but so we connect into these new apis that are much better than the old apis that the gds are using and on top of that we've built our api which is what you would expect today as a developer from an api so rest json documentation is available online and like actually well documented or decently well documented and all of the tools and all of the experience that you would expect as a developer today, we bring it to travel. Yeah, that's amazing. And for some context, I think something, one of the fun facts that I learned when I was working at my travel startup was that I think you actually have a picture on your blog about what the like Sabre, one of these ter- ancient terminals looks like when, like if you go to an airport and you walk up to the terminal desk and the flight attendant is putting something in behind the screen and you like actually get to see that screen. I think that's what you show on in your blog post. And there were tons of tests. Developers have been trying to revamp the system for decades now, right? There still is nothing faster than a trained flight attendant or a trained airline professional who can use the Sabre like directly in that terminal. There's still nothing faster than that, than a human trained to do it. And so we as humans have been trying to revamp the system for decades. And it's super cool that you are actually, you know, making some progress towards making that easier for developers. So that's super cool. That's part of the reason why we're focusing on the API side. I mean, beyond, I think, the fact that it's a much nicer position to be in, like building the API and letting people innovate and build these replacements for for the Sabre Sabre and Amadeus terminal. But yeah, I mean, it takes like three to six months to get trained on these terminals. And when any large travel agency comes and says to their travel agents, 
hey, we're going to replace your terminal that you know very well with that slick UI that's been built very recently and that looks amazing. Like most of the time, the reaction is just cries and screams and they don't want it. So when you first, I guess, I want to ask, how did you come up with the idea? Like this was the problem in the world you wanted to solve. Like where did the idea for Duffel come from? So I used to work for a payments company based in London called GoCardless. And back there, I started this side project with a few friends around travel. It was a website called Next Weekend. It was just like the most unambitious act project you can think of. The idea was as a user, you would select a couple of criteria, architecture, beach days, food, shopping, whatever. And then the website would generate weekend getaways, flights, hotel, activities, free suggestions for destinations you can go to, everything lined up and just one buy button and then everything would be booked for you. And when we started on that project, very naively, we thought, well, the recommendation engine, that's going to be painful. I mean, how are we going to get the data in order to make nice recommendation? And But then the booking engine, once we have the destination, that's going to be super easy. I mean, there must be an API somewhere. We work at an API company. I've used Twilio and Stripe and all of these APIs provided many times over. So surely there is the same thing in travel. And obviously, as you can imagine, we were very, very wrong. We ended up scraping TripAdvisors and build the recommendation engine using that. And then we arrived to the booking engine part and we're like, okay, flights API in Google. And the only thing that comes up is Amadeus and Sabre. So we go on the website, very corporate website, no sign up, not even a presentation of the products, not even a call sales, you know, like at the very least, like someone to reach out to. No, it's just like all corporate fuzzy words and changing the future of travel through better technology. And so we were just, okay, like that's not going to be an option. And we ended up settling on that product from Google called QPX Express. So Google had bought this company back in Boston called ITA, who was doing a flight shopping engine. And they were forced, I think, by the FTC during the acquisition. I think it's the FTC. I'm not so sure with all the federal agencies in the US, but they were forced to leave a version of the flight shopping engine available for the general public for seven or eight years after the acquisition. So what it did is took that amazing flight search engine called QPX, and they created a slimmed down version of it called QPX Express, which was very expensive, 50 cents per search request. So if you're running any decent travel website, you would just get killed by that price. I mean, it wouldn't work. And you couldn't book, you couldn't redirect to the airline's website. So the only thing you could show is just there is a flight that departs this day, this time, and that's it. And so we used that to build the first version of the website. And that was the first foray into the pains of the travel industry and came back to it a few years later, wanted to build a new version, nothing had changed. And so that's when uh, the first got started. And like I said, it was very brave of you to tackle this. This is something that teams and teams and teams of engineers have tried to tackle and have not had great luck with. How did yeah. you decide to use Elixir to tackle this problem? Or did you not? Did it come up later? No. So actually, from the get-go, we started with Elixir. Elixir back 
at that time was my language language of choice for anything that has to do with web and APIs. And that was the language I was the most familiar with and uh, just started building the first version of the API with that. It was the language that I was the most productive with and that I enjoyed. And also I thought it was a language that was very well suited to the kind of problem that, that we were going to face. So. Yeah, I was actually, I was taking a look at your API. It's beautifully documented, by the way, like hats off to you on that. And I noticed that there was a lot of, well, being familiar with flight data, I could recognize it when I saw it. But having now worked on Elixir projects, I was kind of recognizing that maybe the data model is a little easier to scope out in Elixir than maybe another language. Can you speak to sort of how you're using Elixir to leverage or sorry, how you're leveraging Elixir to benefit your data and the way you kind of organize all of that? Yeah. So one of the main benefits of using Elixir is before the data is that we get a request from our API consumers, and then we need to span out to potentially dozens of airlines in order to get their kind of search results. And obviously that's a language that Elixir is really, that's a kind of problem that Elixir is, is well suited to solve. On the data side, we, interestingly, maybe not, <laughs> we used Ecto from the get-go for all of the data that we received from the airlines. So the schema-less version of Ecto. And the idea behind that was, well, we have all of this data that we get back from the airlines. We need to perform some validation. Maybe not all of it is good enough for what we'll do with it. And so Ecto seemed like a natural fit. We're running into some pains now uh, because we're just, we've kind of pushed it too far, I think. The data that we get back from the airlines, the responses are massive. We might get like thousands and thousands of offers just from one airline for one request. And we're just looping over this Ecto data structure over and over. So yeah, it's been fun on the data side. And actually, like at the more fundamental level, one of the other advantage of using Elixir is that Duffel can be visualized as a big pipeline where we get data in, transform it all the way to sending a request to the airlines. We get data back, transform it into the Duffel format, and then send it back to the API consumers. And I wish the code base was that simple, that what I just explained, but theoretically, it should be quite beautiful. Can you talk a little bit more about the conversations in your team at the genesis of this looked like? I mean, were you working on this alone? Did you have to persuade some friends who are either in the Elixir community or elsewhere to come work with you in Elixir? Like what was like the very beginning in the engineering room like? Yeah. So I started this company with two co-founders and one of them was Tom who is with the company now and he's a product designer. And also uh, one of these rare breed of product designer that can also code very well and is probably equally good developer than is a product designer. And fortunately for me, because he was going to focus on all of the front end side of the house, I didn't have to do too much convincing, especially, you know, in the early stages, it's just like, well, we're just building a, a first version. And we'll see, like, if we need to rewrite it, it's just a prototype, we rewrite it. And here we are three years later, everything's still built on Elixir. And so it wasn't too difficult to convince him at the beginning. 
And when you're hiring new team members, are you, I guess, how do you go about finding Elixir talent? So we don't look specifically for Elixir talents. We hire developers that have experience with other languages and we train them on Elixir. Yeah, I think there's a lot of improvements we could do on that training process, but it has worked like fairly well for us. I'm actually quite a big believer in uh, hiring software engineers that are not necessarily restricted to one language and are happy to explore. And obviously, they need to have an appetite to do Elixir, so we're very upfront about that uh, in the interview process. The last thing you want as a, as a developer is coming into a new job and realize that you're using that language that you had no idea it existed. So that's the strategy we've followed so far. And, and I think it, it worked quite well for us. Do you know if you have any clients who are using Elixir to ingest your API? Yeah, actually, I know of one at least. Uh, we're working with this online travel agency in France called Ulysses. And very small team growing super rapidly and they've at some point during their life transitioned from i want to say javascript to elixir and now their whole backend is written in elixir it's called ulysses yeah ulysses, that's a great yeah. that's a great name for a travel agency that's so good so is your main client uh travel agents or are your main clients travel agencies or are they other startups like you or like what's your main client pool look like yeah, a bunch of startups that might happen to be travel agencies on the leisure side, so online travel agencies, small and medium-sized online travel agencies, also corporate booking tools. Yeah, it's fairly distributed like in the world, and also the use cases are quite varied. And when you go to, you said you're working with about 20 or so airlines now. What does that process look like if you're onboarding a new airline, if you're expanding? So we, yeah, we spend a lot of time on the, I guess, selling side and convincing them that they should work with Duffel. And once we've agreed, once they've agreed to work with us, then we get access to the, a sandbox reservation system and we build an integration. And then once the integration is ready, go to production, do a long testing phase where there's just a, a quite a lot of back and forth and calls and certifications and whatnot. And then we go to production. So it, yeah, I mean, it can take a few months. Sometimes can be a bit quicker. Sometimes can be a lot longer. Do you have any horror stories from trying to integrate with any airlines that you could mention? Like, I just imagine that there's one or two airlines that are particularly embarrassing and maybe you can't name them. Maybe you can, yeah. I don't know. I figured I'd ask. I mean, not like with one airline in particular, and I definitely wouldn't name them if that was the case, but we've seen we've seen a lot of horror stuff. With that example I gave on uh, documentation early on, the fact that we receive like documentation for endpoints spread over many, many Word documents and many, many pages inside this document, that's like definitely not fun. We have this one IT provider as well that has... Uh, so the airlines are using IT providers that provide some of their systems sometimes or external consultants. And one of them has built an API for an airline and they have this error page, the list of errors, which probably accumulated all of the errors code that you can get since 1965 or something. So you can scroll through it for probably five minutes at normal speed. It's just like errors, like error codes, error codes. 
and you just scroll and scroll and scroll and you never get to the bottom of it. So, I mean, we could do a whole show on horror stories with airlines. <laughs> I, probably... I feel like if you've got the time, <laughs> we should just do it. No, I mean, I, yeah. I obviously really want to have that conversation. I'm such a travel nerd when it comes to the tech behind travel. So, oh, spin off. I mean, so one thing that's quite interesting that's happening now, and I won't mention the airline, and actually it's many airlines, but we will, um, in our search API, receive results that a customer has asked. They are browsing maybe on Ulysses, for instance. They are looking for flights. Then we receive offers from the airlines, send them back to the client, the client chooses one of these offers, and we have to do a price confirmation call with the airlines and say, hey, the client selected this offer. Is everything okay? Is it still available? Everything all right with this one? And they also, they are supposed to send us more information about that offer, the baggage allowance and all of the conditions and that are attached to it and a bunch of other things. But one of the things they can also do is adjust the price if the price is incorrect. We have many, many, many occurrences with a set of airlines where that price will change significantly. So $150, $200 above what was quoted initially, but also it will happen in the other direction where they will buy a flight that actually they will charge us less for it. So they're losing money and sometimes a lot of money on, on every flight. And We've had calls, we've surfaced that bug, which we consider is a bug. And uh, the response from the airlines is, no, it's working as it's been designed. Like for them, it's like not a problem. I'm like, no, it is a problem. They know why it's happening. They can't fix it. That's kind of amazing. <laughs> yeah, that's scary. Yeah. So... I want to ask you a little bit about kind of what the next phase is for y'all at Duffel. I'm curious, you know, how big is the team? Are you growing? Are you getting into new products? Are you expanding into new technologies? Are you going to be an Elixir company for the foreseeable future? You know, our audience is mostly Elixir developers or Elixir curious developers. Just tell us about where Duffel is heading in the next, let's say, year or so. Yeah. I mean... To your last question, I think Elixir is going to be here for a little while. Uh, it's part of our, I mean, it's the core of our stack now. It's the core of the API. And we've built the application using uh, Umbrella application. So yeah, everything is Elixir, Elixir. You know, it's not like services that we can suddenly move around. The team has grown quite a lot in the last year. We went from 14 people to 40. So that's been super interesting. And next year, the same thing is likely to happen now. We will at least uh, double the team. We might expand into other products. I think there are other verticals of travel that are very interesting. I don't want to comment on it too much now, but there's yeah definitely more on the horizon for us. We have so much to do with flights that I don't see us doing any announcement in the near future. But yeah, stay tuned. More, more to come. We'll have to do a part two to hear more about that. And I do want to ask one other kind of Elixir-related question. Sunday, maybe you have more, but I'm curious, like, if there are any ways that Elixir has, like, really enabled you in ways that you might not have been enabled if you had been working on a platform like Rails or I'm not even sure what else you would use in the travel space, Clojure, maybe. JavaScript. JavaScript. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm a fan of Elixir, but I'm also... Uh, 
just pragmatic technologies. So I, I think we could have done what we've done with Duffel with other languages and probably as well. So one thing that it enabled, at least for me initially, and maybe if I were to bring the, the team on the show, they would have a different opinion, but it was just like fun to build it. And we didn't have to worry about some of the things that we would have to worry with Rails, for instance. Gokarles, the previous company I was working at, was all built in Rails. And there's always like concerns uh, around scalability and how do you distribute workload and which are like always solvable, but are just come like baked in with Elixir. You just don't have to worry about it. And you know the platform is going to scale for a little while and you're not going to run into hard limits early on. So, yeah, I don't know if I totally answered your question, but. Well, I think another way to frame it would be if you knew about developers who might be working in more established companies that are looking to get Elixir adopted into their companies, what kind of advice would you give them in terms of selling Elixir to stakeholders in the company? I would say like pick a problem that you think Elixir is going to, where Elixir is going to show its strength. So anything where there's uh, a lot of concurrency and you need to span out or handle like data coming from multiple streams or that's, I think Elixir can really shine there. Recently, I would say as well, I've been playing a lot with LiveView. So Phoenix LiveView, I think LiveView has a lot going for it and for any, any web app or anything, I don't know, like internal admin tool where you don't necessarily have two separate teams, like when one JavaScript and one backend that can work on the tool, like you can do a lot with LiveView very quickly. I've been super impressed with the framework. So yeah, that would be my two recommendations, I think. What are you using for your front end now? So we're using Next.js. All the dashboards are built with Next.js. Well, remember what I said about having a brilliant co-founder that does JavaScript and is also a product designer. I bring both Elixir into the company and you want Next.js, so fair game. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if you get to integrate with LiveView moving into the future. We've definitely been keeping an eye out to see more examples of people using LiveView in production. So definitely keep us posted. So we do in some ways. We've well, actually like um, I sneakily introduced LiveView for an admin tool that we have. So the kind of back office for, for Duffel. Well, I say sneakily and there was like reasons behind it, but also I think it was sneakily, if I'm honest. And yeah, it's been working quite well for us. People are not necessarily accustomed to the way of working with LiveView. So uh, it's not uh, without friction. I think it's, it's showing promises. And before we close out here, and we'll give you time to plug anything you want, but I'm curious about the London Elixir meetup, because that's actually how I found you was through the London Elixir meetup. You're listed as a co-organizer. Obviously, meetups are not happening right now, or maybe they are, in which case you should tell us about them, because that's awesome. But I'm curious, like, what's the status of the London Elixir meetup, and what are your plans for it? Yeah, so I actually need to uh, give a big shout to Barish, who's been in charge uh, and running things on the meetup recently. Duffel has taken a lot of my time. There hasn't been any events recently. I think we hosted a few at the Duffel office, actually, before the pandemic. So I'm kind of looking forward for that to resume, hopefully in the new year. But otherwise, yeah, no, no major plans. 
Yeah, I can definitely speak from like a meetup organizer standpoint that it's been tough. It's not even just like moving to virtual meetups is one thing, but the like exhaustion rate that people have, the screen fatigue, Zoom fatigue from just being, you know, in meetings all day and then wanting to go to another one. Meetups used to be like hanging out at the end of the day, not another screen meeting. Yeah, Yeah, another call. So it's been it's been rough. Yeah, a lot of it is also I think the presentation part you can do fairly easily on Zoom, but that's not the most interesting part of the meetup. The mingling and eating pizza and all of that, that's the real fun and talking to other Elixir developers and that's much harder to reproduce. Yeah. Do you think we're gonna get like a directory of like underground meetups, like like speakeasies and places mm-hmm. where people are like low key getting together to maybe like whisper in hushed tones over beers and try, like hide from the authorities. Anyway, that's a stupid fantasy. We want to give you the final few moments of the episode to plug anything you want, ask the audience for anything you want, tell them where to find you, how to find Duffel, how to get involved with Duffel. The floor is yours. Well, thank you. Yeah, I think I would have two requests for the audience. One is we are hiring for Elixir developers, not only Elixir developers, but if you happen to to know Elixir, it's uh, definitely a big bonus. Team is based in London. Yeah, we'd love to hear from you if uh, you're looking for a new job. And the second thing is for all the developers in the audience, which hopefully should be maybe all of you, just head to duffel.com, sign up. And if you have any feedback on the onboarding process, the documentation. We're always looking to hear from developers, so we'd love to get your feedback. Thank you very much, Steve. That's it for this episode of Elixir Wizards. Thank you again to our guest, Steve Domine, and my co-host, Sunday Mint, and my producer, Eric Ostrich. Once again, I am Justice Epen. Elixir Wizards is a smart logic podcast here at Smart Logic. We're always looking to take on new projects building web apps in Elixir, Rails and React infrastructure projects using Kubernetes and mobile apps using React Native. We'd love to hear from you if you have a project we could help you with. Don't forget to like and subscribe on your favorite podcast player. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. So add us on all of those. You can find me personally at at just use a pen and Eric at at Eric Ostrich and Sunday at at Sunday Kin. And join us again next week on Elixir Wizards for more Adopting Elixir.